Today's episode is brought to you by We Break You Buy. Interested in sports cards and memorabilia? Check out We Break You Buy on TikTok. We Break You Buy is a small operation run by three brothers, offering spots for a chance at winning some incredible sports cards and memorabilia. That's We Break You Buy. Check it out today on TikTok. your host patrick darms i'm your co-host anton paras and we have a first time guest to the podcast ryan moran welcome welcome hello ryan. everyone thank you thank you uh long time listener first time caller <laughs> we're excited to have you call in <laughs> happy to be here oh we're happy to have you uh please tell us a little bit about yourself if you'd like introduce yourself to the listeners so, like I said, I've been listening to the podcast uh, pretty much since inception, and what I missed in the beginning, I've gone back and listened to. Love the format, love everything you guys are doing, and we've talked a couple times about possibly jumping in, and I don't know if I offer quite the level of depth of movie analysis, but maybe a perspective of the everyday movie watcher that, you know, just kind of give a feel for how I see the movies from my lens. And I think this is a great movie that I'd love to talk about uh, without giving too much away. Fantastic. Excellent. I mean, we, we always love each and every one of our guests. So Ryan, uh, your, your opinion is as important as any guests that we'd have on here. And with that, I did want to ask, uh, you said you a long time listener. Do you have a favorite episode so far? Hmm. That's a tough one. Um, I don't know. I don't think I could pick a favorite, honestly. I, I've enjoyed, obviously, there's several movies that I'm just wholeheartedly in agreement with you guys. They're just sometimes a little rougher than you'd want to see. And then you've opened my eyes to some movies that I haven't seen that I've gone back and then <laughs> ultimately agreed with you. And then there's been uh, maybe a couple here and there where I, I liked it a little more than maybe the score that they got from you two and the guests. But that's the beauty of the podcast, right? It's somewhat subjective obviously there's items that uh you can't argue bad items in the movie are just going to be bad but i like the subjectivity of it all right awesome so very even keeled response and you know if the episode does come to mind later would, would give us a shout out we, we love hearing feedback on our episodes and speaking of feedback patrick we've really been uh gaining a lot of comments and steam on our youtube haven't we we have the YouTube continues to defy all expectations. The the level of growth and user participation that we've gotten there is tremendous. So please keep it coming. We really appreciate it. Even the comments that apparently um don't think very much of our podcast. <laughs> yeah, please like sh share anything and and everything because we love it all. Um, even when we have to use Google Translate. Uh, <laughs> to figure out exactly what the comments mean. Um, but along right, with yeah. that, uh, we was going to mention along with that, you'll also notice on our Instagram, we now have our link tree up, which includes a, a link to 
all platforms that our podcast is available um, for streaming and downloading. So super exciting stuff to have that there. And it also links to our YouTube. That's right. The link tree revealed that we are we are currently on podcast platforms that I have never even heard of before. And I don't know how we got there, but that's the magic of it, including Apple. That's the big one. So we're, we're now yeah, on a, Apple. We were for a while. One. Shout out to Nathan who helped us out with that. And yeah, friend of the yeah, show. I mean, and of course, happy holidays to all the listeners, because we're now deep into the holiday season, whether you celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah or whatever. Have a good time. And of course, we're covering a Christmas-themed movie for this week's episode. <gasps> Ryan Moran really? is here to talk about How the Grinch Stole Christmas. We're, of course, talking about the live-action version starring Jim Carrey, directed by Ron Howard, that was released in the year 2000, Y2K. I say that because there's, you know, there's a few different versions of the Grinch, of course. But um, we wanted to cover this one because... You know, it is a, in some circles, beloved holiday classic. That's all I'll say for now. Some very specific circles and <laughs> quite yeah. a fan base. Yeah, big it, circles. It does have a great fan base. Great it fan does. base. It has a huge following this, this one. Before we get into it, Ryan, is there anything um, you want to cover before we delve in? I just want to make sure that I get my counter plugs in. So uh, I'm going to plug Sean O'Connor. Um, just as the person and individual, uh, and that's it. That's all I have. Okay. I may edit there that There we out. go. <laughs> we usually don't plug people. <laughs> I'm just trying to, to give a unique perspective. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I will intro this for us. In this live-action adaptation of the beloved children's tale by Dr. Seuss, the reclusive Green Grinch decides to ruin Christmas for the cheery citizens of Whoville. Reluctantly joined by his dog, Max, the Grinch comes down from his mountaintop home and sneaks into town to swipe everything holiday-related from the Who's. However, the bitter grump finds a hitch in his plans when he encounters the endearing Cindy Lou Who. How the Grinch Stole Christmas was released on November 17th, 2000 by Imagine Entertainment and Universal Pictures. Directed by Ron Howard. Screenplay by Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman, based on the book by Dr. Seuss. Starring Jim Carrey, Taylor Momsen, Jeffrey Tambor, Christine Baranski, Bill Irwin, and Molly Shannon. A budget of $123 million, that is $218 million adjusted for inflation, and a box office performance of $345 million, that is $612 million adjusted for inflation. Ryan, wow. why did you want to talk about how the Grinch Stole Christmas. Well, I will say initially when I heard the title of the podcast before I started listening, why wasn't it better? I assumed that every movie that you would talk about would just be an absolute bomb. Um, since listening to episodes, obviously that's not the case. You have plenty of movies that you enjoy um, that just have aspects of the movie that could have obviously been better or you weren't a particular fan of. But the Grinch, when you introduced the uh, the idea of how the Grinch stole Christmas was going to be on the podcast, it kind of caught me off guard. I've never heard anyone speak poorly of the movie or someone say that they didn't love it until we had a discussion about it. So I found it super interesting. I definitely wanted to dive into it and kind of see the other perspective because without giving too much away, even though I probably did already, I, uh, I enjoy it a little bit. It's interesting that you said you never heard anything really negative about it. 
this because this was a yeah. very popular movie. Like we just touched on, the box office performance was huge. It was the highest grossing film in North America for the year it, it was released. And yeah, I, I believe that. Yeah, the, the the critical score was not so great, and I think that's where this stems from. But this was a really big deal at the time. Did did all of us see it in the theaters? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, same, and that yeah. probably speaks for a lot of people in our generation. Definitely, yeah. We're all about the same age, and I think for our generation, for millennials, this is a movie that almost everybody I knew saw this in the theaters. And when this was coming out, this was the first time a Dr. Seuss book had been made into a live action version. Everybody grew up with the book. Everybody was familiar with you know the TV special. And to see the story brought to life on the big screen, it was a really big deal. And of course, Jim Carrey, one of the most famous actors in the world at the time, he was going to play the Grinch. That only added to the hype. And then of course, the director, Ron Howard, who I'd say his his stock has faded a little bit in recent years, but back then he was a huge name, incredibly successful filmmaker. He was very much in his prime. He was coming off of Apollo 13 and Ransom. So the hype for this film was enormous, and it had a lot of appeal towards pretty much all audiences. Kids could see it, of course, but the, the film was loaded with a lot of humor that adults could enjoy, and they did. We talked about the money. Audiences really warmed to it. And there's a little bit of a disparity here. I found this interesting. It was the highest grossing film in North America for 2000, but not internationally where it ranked sixth. Which films were the top five? Do either of you have any idea? Gladiator. I know for sure Gladiator was in there. Yes. Yeesh, I don't know. So, so the Grinch beat Gladiator locally in the US, but lost internationally? Yes. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. So here's the top five internationally. Mission Impossible 2, Gladiator, mm-hmm. Castaway, What Women Want, and Dinosaur, the Disney movie. Two of those films are not like the others. <laughs> no, I got to say, What Women Want really threw me for a loop. But it was a huge that movie was, at the uh, time. That was Mel Gibson, right? Yeah. that was. I actually enjoyed that movie. I enjoyed it too. This was Mel Gibson before he, you know, the DUI. Yeah. Right. Wait, so so Pat, would you you're telling me in the year 2000 on the big silver screen, a grinchy tale unfolded with mischief unseen? <laughs> I suppose you could say that. <laughs> so and and you already mentioned Jim Carrey the star in green furry attire. He he, he was the Grinch in Whoville and he set that town on fire. <laughs> A lot of me feels like, at least from my perspective, the hype of the Grinch obviously is like a classic, you know, kids book turned into a a beautiful uh, animated movie, and then into this was a huge hype factor. But Jim Carrey really did it for me uh, as a kid. I loved him, still do to this day. Oh, and we'll and we'll touch on that the importance of Jim Carrey and yes plenty to say he, about Jim Carrey. What how he impacted this film. But yeah. you know, critically, well, let's just say that uh, was not received as well despite the Jim Carreyness. 49% Rotten Tomato score, bang on average. And yeah, the Jim Carrey of it all, I'm I was trying to there's probably no great way to pinpoint this, but this was probably the peak of his popularity, would you say, right? No, I would say that would be Bruce Almighty. You think oh, that Bruce was Almighty? Over- yeah, that was a peak. What about uh, Ace Ventura? I, I I feel like that was for me. That was, that was peak Jim Carrey. 
He was coming. He was on the come up for Ace Ventura, though, right? That was pretty early, yeah, Jim I, Carrey. Yeah, I still you, see that as his best performance ever. Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. I see a discussion think, later on. I was gonna say uh, we really need <laughs> to discuss how do we define best. Yeah, I have yeah, a really okay. hot take on this subject. Okay. But yeah, w- whatever you think of this film, I think it does fit the bill for why wasn't it better? Because this movie is bananas. I think those of a younger age, like our age and younger, will probably tell you it's a Christmas classic. A lot of older fans of Dr. Seuss seem to uh, decry it as a butchery of the original source material, but this is a pretty crazy movie to talk about. I'm looking forward to it. No kidding. It was uh, full of hijinks, Dutch angles, and a lot of some meta moments, right? <laughs> yes. I'm glad no you mentioned Dutch angles. <laughs> There's a lot of Dutch angles in here, and some yes, very strange uh, lighting. Yeah. With that being said, let's uh, let's get into the production history of this, Anton. Before his death in 1991, Dr. Seuss refused offers to sell the film rights to any of his books. However, his widow, Audrey Geisel, she had other plans, and she agreed to several merchandising deals, including clothing lines, accessories, and CDs. In July of 1998, her agents announced via letter that she would auction the film rights of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. So to pitch their ideas to Geisel, the film studios had to be willing to pay her the following. $5 million in cash up front, 4% of the box office gross, 50% of the merchandising revenue and music-related material, and 70% of the income from the book tie-ins. So that's a pretty good haul on her part. Good for her. Hats off. 500 hats off. <laughs> Bartholomew Cubbins. The letter also stated that any actor submitted for The Grinch must be of comparable stature to Jack Nicholson, Jim Carrey, Robin Williams, or Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, very specific. Jack Nicholson, that would have been uh, a nightmare of a film with him in this. I, I just can't <laughs> even imagine that. Robin Williams, you can certainly that. imagine, right? Yeah, that, that fits. I like to think maybe she named Dustin Hoffman and Jack Nicholson because she actually just wanted to meet them. I could I see wonder, the Dustin Hoffman thing after Hook, right? Like, that makes sense to me. Oh, that good point. Good point. Robin Williams, I wonder, though. I, I don't. I, I think there's a dark side to the Grinch that you need, that kind of evil, cold-hearted. I don't know if I could see Robin Williams pulling that off. Robin Williams, of course, did some dark roles, but I don't know how successful they were. Like seeing yeah, him, what's that movie he was in with Al Pacino where he's the serial killer or he's a killer? Uh, Insomnia. Uh, you you also may recall when he took a dark role in One Hour Photo. Yeah, yeah. The darkness, yeah, but but it has to be a balanced dark humor. You know what I mean? Like it's it's got to be on both ends of the scale, but on the same kind of page. I don't know if he he could have pulled that off. I don't think anyone could do it like Jim Carrey did it. Right. And to be fair, um, any comparisons that we are going to make are how Jim Carrey ended up playing the Grinch, which was over the top zany. And so who knows how, how these guys might have played it. One of them might have played it a bit more straight. Yep. Although I would have paid big money to have seen uh, Jack Nicholas. Jack Nicholson uh, try, try his hand at it. Jack Nicholas would have been interesting too. Yeah, Jack Nicholas would have given golf tips left and right. Twentieth <laughs> Century Fox pitched their version with director Tom Shadiak and producers Dave Phillips and John Davis in attendance, with Nicholson in mind to play the Grinch. 
the Farrelly brothers and John Hughes pitched their own versions. Universal Pictures held its presentation with Brian Grazer and Gary Ross in attendance. Geisel refused each offer. Grazer then enlisted his producing partner, Ron Howard, to help with the negotiations. At the time, Ron Howard was developing a film adaptation for The Seawolf. At one point, Tim Burton was asked to direct, but he turned it down due to a scheduling conflict with Sleepy Hollow. You have to wonder if the film would have been better off with Burton, because this sort of is right up his alley. I could see Mm. that. Ron Howard was initially uninterested in directing this. However, Grazer talked him into traveling to Geisel's residence for the pitch meeting. While studying the book, Howard became interested in the character Cindy Lou Who, and he pitched a film in which she would have a larger role, as well as a materialistic representation of the Who's and an expanded backstory for the Grinch. In September 1998, Howard signed on to direct and co-produce the film with Jim Carrey in the lead role. It was reported that Universal Pictures paid $9 million for the film rights for The Grinch and Oh, The Places You'll Go to Geisel. I wanted to just take a quick second there. How do you think that convo went with Howard going to Geisel's place to, to talk about directing the film for like a pitch meeting? What do you think she said? Because I mean, she must have made an impact. I wonder if she was just, uh, aren't you the guy from Happy Days? <laughs> this would have been pre-arrested development too, right? Right. <laughs> oh yeah, I wonder if she called him Richie Cunningham. Why'd you bring me Richie? <laughs> she didn't die that long ago, actually. She lived to be a pretty old lady. Ripe age. Yeah, yes. ripe age. Yes, the she, money she helps. She had the money. Yeah, the money helps. Yeah. I was going to say, Anton, they probably just ended the pitch with, and by the way, here's like your out-the-door revenue. And she was like, I like this mm. idea. Uh, yeah, there we go. From yeah. everything I've read, she she did care about the purity of uh, the stories and, and making sure that it lined up with the, the true Dr. Seuss uh, version of things. But you have to imagine that money was definitely uh, in the forefront. She certainly cared about the cat in the hat. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> wow. That sh- I'll, I'll come back for that. Would you say that's one of the worst movies you've ever seen? I would absolutely say that's one of the worst <laughs> movies I've ever seen. I, l- I like to think she showed up for that pitch meeting, just like had a full on like brand new tan, some like gold sunglasses, like diamond rings. She's like, whatever it is, just okay it. <laughs> and then yeah. she regretted her decision. The, the request was in comparison to how the Grinch stole Christmas. How much money am I uh, going to receive here? Okay, let's go okay. for it. I have to say, that movie makes this look like Shakespeare. (laughs) Oh, yes. We mentioned this in the intro, but Ron Howard's involvement really was a big deal. He was still very much in his prime, and he was one of the biggest directors in Hollywood with a very high batting average at that point. I mentioned Apollo 13 and Ransom. And then the year after this, he would have the biggest critical success of his career with A Beautiful Mind, which, which won Best Picture, and he won Best Director for that. It's probably one of the worst Best Picture winners of the past 30 years, but whatever, the point still stands. Mm, I think you're thinking of Moonlight. I haven't seen Moonlight. All I can tell you is A Beautiful Mind beat out Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, which is a travesty. That is a... Robbed. Robbed. Yeah, you can't put much faith in the awards when things like that happen. No. And look, I don't want to hate on A Beautiful Mind. I think it was a good movie, but uh, who's really watching it 25 years later? Eh. Not I. No. But he's done some other really good stuff, and I, I do want to shout out Ron Howard because I do I really do like mm-hmm. a lot of his movies. Um, like 
you know, we, we mentioned the ones already. Uh, Frost Nixon is a great movie. Backdraft is a really good movie. Mm-hmm. Willow is a cult classic. Uh, more recently, I really enjoyed Rush with, with Chris Hemsworth. Mm-hmm. Talented filmmaker. Yes, Hollywood is better because we have Ron Howard. Absolutely. Yeah. And his daughter. Uh, Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman, who both wrote Who Framed Roger Rabbit, they went through eight drafts of the screenplay, but Geisel had veto power over the script. She objected to several sexual innuendos and jokes, including one about a family who did not have a Christmas tree or presents jokingly referred to as the Hoosteins. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Probably a good idea to cut that out. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, gosh. Do you think that would have passed the vibe check in 2023? I mean, it didn't in 2000. (laughs) Jeez. And then, of course, before Carrie was cast as the Grinch, we mentioned Jack Nicholson, Robin Williams, Dustin Hoffman. Nicolas Cage's name was in there. I don't know if I believe that. Interesting one. Tom Hanks, don't believe that. Tim Curry, I can totally believe that. And Eddie Murphy, I can believe too. But I do not see Tom Hanks putting on that suit. Nicholas well, Cage would be good to steal Christmas. He's got a good uh, track record of stealing. D- does he? Six, uh, in movies? Sure. Oh. Gone in 60 Seconds. National, National Treasure? National uh, Treasure? Yeah. yeah. He, he's, I mean, kind of the, the all-star of stealing things in movies. For good reasons, though. Con yeah. Air. Stole my heart in that one. Yeah. Why couldn't you put the bunny back in the box? <laughs> <laughs> Principal photography took place from September 1999 to January 2000. Geisel visited the set in October, and most of the Whoville set was built on the Universal Studios backlot, behind the Bates Motel set from Psycho. Jim Carrey based his character's accent on Sean Connery. Rick Baker designed and created the prosthetic makeup for Carrey and the rest of the cast. It took a number of tests, and ultimately Carrey admiring a photo of Baker in his first test makeup for the decision to use Baker's original design. The Grinch suit was covered in yak hair, dyed green, and sewed onto a spandex suit. Application of the makeup took up to two and a half hours, and after one such session, a frustrated Carrie kicked a hole in the wall of his trailer. I want to add a note there that the first time that they actually put the makeup on, it took eight and a half hours. That so they was only the got to, yeah. they, only, it, they only got to two and a half after they figured out the method. Yeah, once the foot went through the wall and he threatened to uh, walk off, I think that's when they kind of streamlined the process, got it down to two and a half. Which is still ridiculous, but... It is. Yeah. Um, yeah, his, his makeup artist, uh, Kazuhiro, he recounted, quote, on set, Carrie was really mean to everybody, and at the beginning of the production, they couldn't finish. After two weeks, we could only finish three days' worth of shooting schedule because suddenly he would just disappear. And when he came back, everything was ripped apart. We couldn't shoot anything, end quote. Hero ended up leaving the production until Baker and Howard had a discussion with Carrie on how important he was to the project. Carrie agreed to keep his anger in check and Hero would return. Ultimately, Carrie spent 92 days in the Grinch makeup and became adept at remaining calm during its applications. Most of the applications that the rest of the cast wore were noses that connected to an upper lip along with some dentures, ears, and wigs. And Sir Anthony Hopkins recorded all of the narration for this movie in one day. Because of course he did. Of course. Again, because of course he did. Why not? I don't know like, if this is something we're going to touch on uh, with the costumes, but I did also read that Jim Carrey uh, was provided a CIA torture expert uh, to teach him coping mechanisms for how to deal with feeling suffocated throughout the entire uh, time he was wearing the suit. That's awesome. Yeah, no, 
looking at that costume, I think it's kind of, if you've ever had that feeling of like you put on like a Halloween costume and you start to feel like, ooh, like vibe for whoever you dress as, I could only imagine the torture of just getting all of that yak fur put on, hours of makeup, and then having to film scenes. It, yeah. it just, it just, and plus, like, right, the studio lights are just extremely hot. Yeah, the the two and a half hours of of dealing with the the costume being put on, and then that's just the start to your day, and then you've got to move around and act and and put on the performance of your life. I just thought about something. He he also appears to have some pretty serious contact lenses in. I can only so, imagine how uncomfortable that alone must have been. Another fun fact I learned about this movie is he did shoot with contact lenses for about half of the movie. And then he uh, had enough of it and, and called it quits. And they had to digitally uh, create the green yellowish eyes uh, for huh. the back half of the movie. Wow. That's an example of some CGI that held up. Yep. Yeah, probably the only thing. <laughs> That's it for the production history. We talked about all the money it made. It's time to talk about why it wasn't better. And let's start with number one, Jim Carrey. Um, to me, this film lives and dies on Carrie's performance. If you're going to watch this movie and you want to enjoy it, you have to recognize that Jim Carrey is a genre in of himself. He is a level of humor that cannot be achieved by many others. And I have to say, for the record, I am not a Jim Carrey fan. I don't care for most of his material, but I have a great deal of respect for his talent because I've never really seen anybody like him. And my hot take for this movie, I will get this out right now. I think this is his best performance. I will say I'm, I'm definitely a Jim Carrey fan, as I've said earlier. I think he is phenomenal. He's definitely got a more uh, childish type of humor at times, but I think his delivery is always pretty much spot on. Uh, and, and I don't know. He always gets me. His jokes always kind of hit home with me. This is somehow my favorite Carrie performance. It's I think definitely he was, up there. I think he was probably the only actor that could have pulled this role off, and he does. You're, yeah, you're I, I truly... Go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, you're telling me that he didn't truly pull off the Riddler in Batman Forever? <laughs> it's funny you say that. Uh, Ryan and I share a love for Batman Forever. Yes, we do. Mm. And, and I, I, I will I say... I actually don't hate his performance there. I don't hate it. I think it was very much of the era. There's no way that performance would work in a Batman movie now. There's it's just no chance. I, I think that's one of the harder villain type of roles to cast and get right. The Riddler overall. Yeah. What did you think of um, the 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 newest version of the Riddler in the Batman? Um, nah, not not my favorite. I don't know mm. if we've seen the great version of the Riddler. I'm not convinced. No, I I don't think we have. Truthfully, I do not. It, but again, I I do give it kind of. Little wiggle room, maybe a lot of wiggle room, because it's just it's tough to pull off the essence of the actual Riddler. Back to I guess back to <laughs> Carrie. I mean, okay, so you're you're telling me his performance in The Grinch. It's be so you're saying better than Ace Ventura. Yes. Better than Truman Burbank. Oh, a thousand times better than that. I, I am very much in the minority on Jim Carrey. I don't like his humor for the most part. I think Ace Ventura <laughs> has aged poorly. I think he a lot of his two, humor has aged poorly. He played two characters in the famous 2000 film, Me, Myself, and Irene. Yes, flawlessly. Not a fan. <laughs> Look, I'm just not a fan. I, 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 I respect his talent. 
I've never seen anybody like him. He he is a force in of himself, but I really like him in this movie. He did everything they asked him to do. They asked him to dial it up. He sure as heck dials it, it up. He's basically a human cartoon character, and this is a an attempt at um, adapting a cartoon, and he really was the best choice for it. He also, I want to just again on the Jim Carrey defense team here, I will say, I mean, and feel free to disagree, but in terms of comedic one-liners, I feel like he's got to be top of the list for just all of his movies, the amount of one-liners that are like glued to my brain that I could pull out at any given time. I don't know if I could think of any other actor that has that kind of comedic one-liner ability. Uh, a very different type of comedic actor, but I, re- Leslie Nielsen was always very memorable. Fair. That's fair. <laughs> but, I mean, I, this is the kind of role for him, though, where Jim Carrey always struck me as, like, you either like what he's doing or you don't. Although I don't care for him, in, generally speaking, I think he does manage to rise above it. He carries this movie because I don't know what this film is without his performance. He really does a great job of acting through the makeup and all the stuff that we talked about and when the production that he had to endure. And what I really like about it is that Anton and I were joking around before the recording where we were kind of asking ourselves, like, did this film even have a screenplay? Because he's given some truly awful dialogue and he probably made the smart decision to improvise as much as possible. I have no idea how this screenplay went through eight different drafts. There's like a wafer thin story going on here, but he's consistently creating something out of nothing. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for it. And like I said, this is my favorite performance he's ever given. This was very much the same era as Austin Powers, where the the um, the protagonist was mugging for the camera the whole time. It's, it's a style of comedy you, you don't really see in movies anymore. Just the winking at the camera all the time. Yeah. There were a lot of films in that time that what was popular at the time versus co- comedies then versus what are comedies now. You had also hits during that time period, of course, comedies like Old School, Zoolander. So very different tastes and, of course, very different what was popular in films. Yeah. Yep. There's a lot of meta jokes that he's giving. Um, I like this Roger Ebert quote I found about his performance. He said, quote, he works hard as an actor, has ever worked in a movie to, to no small avail. Nevertheless, he decided that, quote, adults may appreciate Carrie's remarkable performance in an intellectual sort of way and give him points for what was obviously a supreme effort, end quote. And then this is probably one of the film's strengths is the amount of adult humor that just went over all the kids' heads. I didn't grasp half of it when I saw this in theaters at the time. Him messing with people's mail, sending fake jury duty letters and eviction notices, like that's that stuff works. So classic. And and that is one of my biggest arguments for the strength of how the Grinch stole Christmas is that it's got a rewatchability factor strictly on the fact that I watched it as a child. I loved it as a child just based on, you know, it was a Dr. Seuss book turned into uh, something that I recognized and loved and it had humor that I enjoyed and a story that that made me feel like uh, warm and fuzzy for Christmas. And as I got older and rewatched it, I discovered all of these jokes that I never knew existed. I mean, to the point that, Pat, you just told me yesterday about a joke that I completely missed. And uh, and I think that's, you know, a benefit to the movie. And it, and it kind of adds to why I think it's fantastic. You could just keep rewatching and finding new stuff. It's got little uh, Easter eggs all over. 
I like when he tries to hail a taxi and he says, it's because I'm green, isn't it? <laughs> but you see what I mean? The one-liners. That's a Jim yeah. Carrey. It, this one is probably chock full of it. Like, you know, the jury duty, like you said, the blackmail when when he's going through the phone book. And he, it, it just I could recite the entire almost the entire movie. I feel like I could go through uh, by memory. Solve world hunger. Tell no one. That was hilarious. Uh, dinner when with myself. Uh, I can't miss that again. <laughs> uh, and then when he's uh, whispering off the wall. Yes, you're an idiot. <laughs> you're an idiot. This is my favorite one, and I, I, I've seen this movie, you know, quite a bit, and I always miss this line when he's talking about Santa, and he said he probably lives up north to avoid taxes. I don't know why it's funny to me, but it is. But it is. It, it, that's that's just part of the the zing in there. So what I love about his performance is it does feel like the musings of a crazy man that lives by himself in a mountain, right? He's just so extra. With everything. Absolutely. Yeah. I do want to read a quote of a negative review of his performance because this the, his performance, as much as we're all praising it here, it is one of the most polarizing things about the film. Stephanie Zacharek of Salon Magazine uh, she wrote that, quote, Carrie pulls off an admirable impersonation of an animated figure. It's fine as far as mimicry goes, but mimicry isn't the best playground for a comedic genius. Shouldn't we be asking more of a man who's very likely the most gifted comic actor of his generation? And, quote, she concluded that, quote, in spite of a few terrific ad libs, his, joke his jokes come across as nothing more than a desperate effort to inject some offbeat humor into an otherwise numbingly unhip nonsensical and just plain dull story end quote well that's a that's a harsh take i mean very harsh i i, I would wonder if if she enjoyed the the dr seuss book itself before giving such a uh, aggressive response to his acting i think he took the source material ran with it and injected some much needed additional humor so like i said you can watch it as an adult and there's almost a level of added joy like I understand this joke, and, and my son that's watching with me has no idea what's going on, but he likes the movie for what it is. I think she is being harsh. I understand what she's saying, and this is going to bring us into the second reason why it wasn't better. He is carrying this movie, no pun intended, in a way that I have seen very few actors do. I think he recognized very early on that the script had very flimsy material for him to work with, and he had to do a lot of heavy lifting. And that is ultimately my problem with this movie. What is this film without his performance? It's entirely Nothing. reliant on his performance. Yeah, I'll agree with you on that. Which is in a way, like, that's actually pretty amazing that they have the right ingredients to do it right. So I actually feel like that's a win. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. And at the end of the day, when you look at what the Grinch is, it's a story about him. And his journey and, and kind of where he started and his redemption plot uh, towards the end. So I understand why he is the main focal point. And I think they really kind of drove that home. And that's what it was meant to be. Number two reason why this wasn't better, the production. My main criticism of this film would be its visuals. I find them very unpleasant. I fundamentally believe that Dr. Seuss's material just simply does not translate to live action. I think that they did everything they could to make it work, but it just never clicked for me. This has 
some of the ugliest cinematography and set design I have ever seen put to film. You can tell that they put a lot of planning and money into the production design, but everything looks fake. It looks cheap. It looks ugly. Everything looks like it's made out of plastic, like you're on the set of some theme park. And it looks like with the lighting that it was filmed inside of a giant warehouse. I mean, I, I, I will agree with you on the lighting. And um, I, I, I do agree. Everything looks plasticky, but I don't know. I think that in a lot of ways was, you know, the goal. I, I know I, I read that um, part of the set design was done by children, like young children. Uh, one of the set designers brought in like second and third graders to work on the costumes and things like that, because it's it's an imaginative world created by you know through the lens of, of a child in a lot of oh. ways oh so that's what they said versus that's what they said <laughs> versus we brought in these kids because it's going to cost us way less <laughs> let's just have marketing <laughs> spin up a story to make it sound really neat in my in my heart just blame the children <laughs> why did the yeah, sets look like crap well we hired children to design them You've just insulted uh, several children that are now adults. So. Yeah, they're now adults, so it's a look, wrong it equal a, footing. Look, it was a swing and a miss. The introduction where you you start flying into the snowflakes, and then you see the mountain range, and kind of get to Whoville. I, I felt like that actually is pretty pretty good. I, I, I still to this day, I, after rewatching it. I thought that that was actually really like kind of cool and awe inspiring for for a film as old as it is. I, I really did enjoy that. I won't disagree and say there aren't there aren't parts that look good, but for example, whenever you see shots of the town of like the Grinch, he's all dressed up and he's walking around the town. It feels like with such bright lights go uh, through the screen, there's some sort of like weird like I don't know like did someone just smudge up? the lens and it just never cleared and they just never cleaned it because the town just looks so smudgy and just so like blown out. It's Ah, I'm I'm glad you brought this up, Anton. It was a stylistic choice designed to give the film a diffused look. And it seemed like the effect that they were trying to go to was like watching the movie through a snow globe. But like you, I did, I don't Mm. think it was effective. I did some Googling and the film was shot with something called a Tiffin Black Pro Mist filter, which obviously I don't know what that is, so I had to look into that. Oh, right. They the saw description, the image. Yes. The, the description of it, this is from the product's website. It fits the film perfectly. It does the following. Reduces highlights and lowers glare. Creates a soft quality of light and pastel effect, and it softens wrinkles and blemishes while maintaining skin tone values. Well, it looks like absolute crap. Yep. Again, I think it goes into the fundamental problem that Dr. Seuss's settings and characters, they, they defy physics. And when you try to put them into a live action format, you're going to be constrained by the physical nature that I think the book material circumvents. I don't think there's a good way to make the visual style look convincing on screen. But the cinematography part of it, you called it out in the beginning, Anton. A lot of Dutch angles, mm-hmm. a lot of tilts. A lot of things not in focus. I feel like I'm watching a Terry Gilliam film or like Batman and Robin in the worst way. Characters are shoving their faces in the camera. Everything looks cluttered. There's no natural light at any point. Everything looks like fake stage lighting. It's very dissimilar to anything that uh, Ron Howard has done. It's a, it's very It stands out amongst all his works in not so, a very good way. Right. So counterpoint or just question, uh, what, what scenes look the best? 
or like, yeah, what scenes look the best and where during the film do we actually feel like, oh, the set design looks great and the camera doesn't look as uh, just blown out and shoddy like the rest of the films in Whoville. Mount Crumpet. Exactly. Now, when we think about, I actually was giving this a lot of thought. When the director is showing us Whoville, our perceptions of the Who's are these are people so obsessed with this holiday and gifts and like teaching kids how to rap and how important it is to have lights on your house that it's all essentially fake. It's all essentially just, it's not actually pretty. It's just overblown. So if you're kind of assuming that is the message they're trying to tell, then maybe having a filter on that whenever you're going through the town really does kind of shine a light on like how unnatural this actually all is versus when you go to the reality of the Grinch, which is a bit more clear and dark, but that is the reality of the dichotomy between where the Grinch lives and what you're seeing in Whoville. I I definitely agree with you. I think to your point, there's like an, an overtone darkness that has to do with the obsession over the commercialization of Christmas, right? What is Christmas about? Presence. They say it over and over again. It's about presence and wrapping and and you know making sure all of the materialistic stuff is, is the focal point. And as much of the lighting as they power shoot onto their houses, it's still a really dark way to view Christmas. And it's part of the biggest gripes that the Grinch has with the whole thing. It's all about the junk that you you buy and give one another and then you end up sending it to the garbage plus it's always cloudy in whoville if you notice so you know it's got to be a little brown (laughs) it is cloudy because it's filmed so poorly (laughs) every bit as ugly as batman and robin that's what the cinematography reminded me of inside mount crumpet was was nice I, i i thought that was a really really good set were there ice skates in this film ice skates there must have been right shouts out to batman and robin with ice skates <laughs> they don't call them ice skates in whoville so i'm, I'm yeah. sure there was a an adaptation of ice skates though <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, overall i i think the film relied too much on that color correcting that they was very common of that era everything has that gray mistiness to it i don't mm-hmm. know very misguided in my opinion i don't think it's a coincidence anton that ron howard hired roger deakins to shoot his next film a beautiful mind there we go yeah, because this was shot by a fairly well-known uh, cinematographer named Don Peterman, but it ended up being his final film. I don't want to be too harsh on him. He has a pretty sad story. He had a really distinguished career, and he ended up suffering a serious head injury while shooting Mighty Joe Young shortly before this, and he apparently never really recovered. He passed away in 2011. I wanted to give him a shout out because he shot some pretty other high-profile stuff. Uh, the First Men in Black, Point Break, Get Shorty. He got Oscar nominations for Flashdance and Star Trek for The Voyage Home. Yeah, shout out to Don Peterman. Yeah. Did want to double confirm Mighty Joe Young. That was the film with the gorilla. Yes, it yes. Was. Oh man, that that was a core memory unlocked. Okay, keep going. <laughs> we, we'll keep going. Do you want to cover that Did on the podcast? Mighty Joe Young. Um, <laughs> I don't know. We don't. If, we, don't uh, we don't have to. You can say no. I was gonna say I'm gonna say no right now, just because okay, I don't know you. if there was also a huge. I don't know if there was a huge uh, hype for Mighty Joe Young at any point. Uh, there was not. I definitely saw it, uh, but I don't remember a single thing about it besides the fact that there was a giant gorilla. <laughs> and yeah. it did its job. Yeah. It's all it needed. Uh, I think the CGI in this movie, mm, not not great. Doesn't hold what? up very well. 
What about the car explosion scene? Are you kidding? That holds up. Does the it? The mini car. The mini car with the giant. I mean, not only was it hilarious, but I, I thought it looked pretty good. Perhaps. I believed it. I felt the heat. The random <laughs> shots of the tiny who's not very good. You know, most of the, or maybe not most, but there was a large amount of who's that were Cirque du Soleil um, members. That's not surprising. They were doing, yeah, they were doing all the acrobatics uh, to, to give the who's that hoppy, jumpy vibe. I'm going to get this out of the way. The makeup for the Grinch, I think, is fantastic from Rick Baker. He deservedly won his sixth Academy Award for this film. He would later go on to win seven. It's great technical work. I think it's one of the best things about the film is how impressive the Grinch's makeup was. But I have to say, the Who's makeup is some of the creepiest stuff that I've ever seen in a movie. It's the Uncanny Valley, and I finally figured out why. It reminds me of Jumanji, where the kid gets turned into the monkey. It's pretty oh, much yeah. the same makeup, and it freaked me out as a kid, and that's why this does too. Hmm. So that now it's starting to make sense. Maybe it's just a uh, a core fear that you have of the Who's. Maybe that's why we're talking about it today. It's very possible. <laughs> well, to be fair, it is unsettling. I mean, I I also agree that it's a bit off-putting to see, especially close-ups, whenever the Who's are on screen. Yeah, that's... but I thought I thought it was good. I never at any point really looked at it. And I'm like, oh, like I could see this is a rubber mask on this guy. I mean, obviously you know that it's not real, but I, I didn't I didn't think it was a bad job for the Who's. Oof, awful. <laughs> Peter, the the monkey boy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Well, also I think it, part of it was whoever they hired to stylize um, the Who's for this film. Because even looking at pictures of how they were originally depicted in Dr. Seuss's books, they don't look unsettling. And it's just for whatever reason, they chose to really pronounce like just really pronounce the way those noses protruded. And as I talk about it, I'm getting a vision in my head and I feel fear. Yeah, I was... felt like the noses were almost like a, uh, a status for social um, order. Like, if you notice, Mayor Who has the largest nose out of anyone. And Cindy Lou doesn't even have her nose yet. And uh, they don't really take too much consideration into what she has to say. Nor should mm, they. That's fair. Speaking of Mayor Who, Jeffrey Tambor is, like, practically unrecognizable. Yeah. A big transformation with him. And then I have in my notes, Clint Howard looks more human with all the Who, who makeup on. <laughs> <laughs> Anton, Man. what Prost- freaked you yeah. out the most? Because I, I know you have to share. Well, I mean, the prosthetics and colors and cartoonish delight are that whimsy. Both wacky and bright. What did you think of uh, Baby Grinch? Come on. Get it oh, out. Like, look, okay, I'll just say this right now. Like, the, the Baby Grinch out of all of the Who outfits, that is number one on the top of my list of just haunting things. I think it's it's one of the most interesting things that I found researching for the film. Because one of the things I was curious about was, okay, you know, there is seems to be a very big fan base for this film. One, there's a lot of memes that have sprouted up across like TikTok about just fascination with not only the Grinch, but particularly Baby Grinch. And it terrifies me. And even then, there's also subsets of the fandom during I don't know if it's during the holidays or all throughout the year. It's a big thing now, especially with like AI apps to get Grinchified. So people are like putting their photos online, say if they don't have the app, just asking folks to Grinchify themselves and their kids. 
and grit like it just looks terrifying to me so it, it it's definitely one of those very haunting images to see the uh, baby grinch in this film uh and i'm i'm sure there are other listeners out there that agree with me I, I would even agree with you on that. Baby Grinch was kind of horrifying. He reminded me of the plants from Harry Potter that they pulled from the pots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Baby, baby Grinch is definitely uh, haunting my dreams. And then even then, like Kid Grinch, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's starting to sound like Dragon Ball Z. Kid Boo. Um, Kid Grinch um, is... Also strange. Also very strange. And then also just has like immense strength as a child which yeah. i guess like sh- shows that he has super strength in the future i found it weird when he shaved he looked kind of the same he didn't look that different <laughs> i, I had to go back and see the beard that he was being called out on and i think most of it was sideburn i, I think it's misclassified as beard um yeah. from young mayor who but yeah it, 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 he didn't do too bad of a shave job overall i mean a couple nicks on your first try is not so bad right uh, Anton, I'm glad you mentioned Harry Potter because I have some stats here. This film had a larger budget than the first two Harry Potter films. It also had a larger budget than all three Lord of the Rings films individually. It also had a larger budget than Gladiator. So you're telling me that all they had three no of those excuse films, being this ugly. Yeah, that's what I'm and, telling and you. All th- and all three of those films couldn't even live up to the hype of the Grinch. No, they tried. Valiant no. effort. Yeah, Harry Potter didn't didn't stand a chance. Yeah, it's because they Ugh. didn't have the uh, they didn't have this budget. That's why they didn't have to pay children no, to, no. to create set design. That's <laughs> yeah. that was the X factor. They didn't invest in that cam on yeah, all those. They paid actual things. adults, professionals. What if we hired <laughs> professionals? What a <sighs> what a mistake. Number three reason why this wasn't better: the story, the beauty of the mm-hmm. original book, and then the you know the TV cartoon adaptation. I think it is in the simplicity. We didn't know anything about the Grinch. He didn't have a backstory. He didn't need a backstory. We didn't need to know his motivation for hating Christmas. It's called How the Grinch Stole Christmas, not Why the Grinch Stole Christmas. I respectfully disagree uh, on that point. I think I appreciated the fact that they gave us a little history as to why. I mean, I would have liked to learn where he came from outside of the umbrella or the Hoover Sella, whatever it's called. Um, but outside of not knowing how he was created, I did appreciate a, a little more of an understanding of why he hates Christmas so much. And at the end of the day, he just wanted to be loved, specifically by true. Martha May, throwing strong signals at him at a young age. Yes. Yeah. But uh, I, I like the fact that we find out what turned him so bitter towards Christmas. They did. There's a lot of things they didn't really explain, though. Like, why was he green? Why didn't he look like the other Who's? Um, I mean, why the two adoptive mothers never looked for him after he like ran away? They might have felt like they were better off. That was uh, maybe like a okay, dodge that bullet. (laughs) Dodge, (laughs) dodge that guy. He was he was a mess. (laughs) No one could survive on Mount Crumpet, right? He's probably fine. He's got covered in fur. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, Pat. I just like I can't get over how awesome that line is. Why the Grinch stole Christmas? I, I I see it kind of more as like a good like headline CNN news. Everyone's asking how the Grinch stole Christmas, but no one ever asked why. 
the Grinch stole Christmas. He didn't need a backstory, and the animated old school version of it is, I, I just think, a much more faithful adaptation. In here, they try to take a 69-page book and try to turn it into a hundred, you know, a hundred-minute-long movie. It just doesn't work for me. I think in my last effort to defend the backstory, it also adds to the ability for his redemption arc. Right. If he just had a blanket hatred of Christmas and who's then the the heart size juicing up a couple sizes and, and everything and him ending up loving Christmas at the end doesn't make total sense to me. But when you go back and you figure out, OK, well, he doesn't actually hate Christmas. He hates the who's and and specifically the mayor and just the way that they handle Christmas and what they focus on for Christmas then I guess I could get behind how he could get over all that if they just treat him a little better. That's fair. And I want to go on the record here. Pat, I disagree with you. I think that adding to the plot of the Grinch, giving a bit more backstory, actually did a lot more good. And I found it very admirable compared to if they had just stuck to a very simple story and taken basically page for page what was from the original book. Now, one thing I want to remind people is if you haven't read the book in a long time, there's, of course, the Grinch. He's just very, you know, curmudgeon. He's, he's the Grinch. He lives in the mountains. He hates the Who's. If you may not re- recall, the reason he really hated the Who's and Christmas is because they were so damn loud. That was the reason he hated Christmas. And he wanted to stop it because they were so noisy and loud. So... Then he ends up figuring out or finding the meaning of Christmas through all the who's that despite having all their things stolen, they, they still believed in like the spirit of Christmas and that changed his heart. I think that by really tying him together to the community and how he was mistreated and how he really had to get over just how he really has been an outsider for uh, his entire life and being able to finally make a connection, I think I thought that made it much more meaningful in the end. So I actually liked it. I think there's a reason why we don't see any more of these movies. Simplicity <laughs> is best. It, this reminded me of, do you remember the uh, the Tim Burton remake of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Charlie, uh, Charlie. Yeah, and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, where they tried yeah. to give Willy Wonka's character a backstory and we saw flashbacks of his childhood. Same problem mm-hmm. for me. Willy Wonka works much better as a mysterious character. It's much more effective to the reader when you're just left to speculate about them. Now, I understand why they did this for the Grinch, because otherwise you're talking about an hour-long movie. But I just fundamentally don't think that story is translatable into a 100-minute movie without making you know some serious uh, additions to it, which they did. Then you're going to hate... Timothy Chalamet in this new film. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, we may have to cover it at some point if it if it meets the criteria, but who knows? Maybe it'll be good. We we haven't actually talked about it on the podcast yet, but you know, I'd be curious to know what you think of the Grinch. It just the it, it was like 2018, directed by or produced by Illumination. It's a Universal film, completely animated. And, you know, I'll, I'll say from my end, I enjoyed it. And I'd be curious to see what, uh, you know, the both of you think of that particular film. I was not a fan of it, actually. Mm, I've never seen I, it. I think, I think be, similar to, to kind of what we were touching on in the very beginning, how the purists of Dr. Seuss is uh, how the, the Grinch 
didn't like the film adaptation with Jim Carrey. I, I feel like Jim Carrey became my staple memory of how the Grinch is and should be. And so I was not a fan of the new version. Because Benedict Cumberbatch played it a bit more just not zany, right? Yeah, correct. A- absolutely. Yeah, just yeah. wasn't wasn't my cup of tea. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious what Pat would think if he ever gives it a watch. I'll, I'll watch it. I'll check it out. Is it shorter than this one? Yes, it's 80 minutes. Oh, fantastic. Sounds good. <laughs> it's not it's like not bad at all, right? It's like an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't we don't need to see uh, Cindy Lou Who interviewing people about the Grinch. Thank goodness. That's a little there were there were a few there was a lot of cringe in this film. Yeah. I just wanted to understand why why he hated Christmas. We needed to know. The people wanted to know. Mm. I guess audiences <laughs> did because it made a ton of money. It did, and it's got it's got. Re- I mean, it it continues to right. I I had to buy it uh, to do my my rewatch. So shout out to them for making just a little bit more money around Christmas season again. Yeah, shout out to uh, Warner Discovery for taking all this content down off of uh, HBO Max. And I, I yeah. know it's called Max, and I don't like calling it Max, and I'm just going to refer to it as HBO Max because I think it sounds better. Yeah, whoever made that decision, please just just go back. It's okay. We're we're, we're upsetting all of the uh, all of the Discovery folks that have invested in HBO Max. Well, I think they got bigger fish to fry because they're uh, apparently fifty billion dollars in debt. So maybe maybe get on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> get past your feelings, Discovery. Make yeah. a good show. I had a question about the plot of this film too. They try to explore the deeper meaning of Christmas, but it begs the question, do the Who's believe in Jesus Christ? So the narrator, Anthony Hopkins, he mentions how they celebrate Arbor Day and Easter, which implies that like Jesus is a thing, but it's never addressed, and I wish it had been, because they're trying to expl- exploiting the, you know, the commercialization of Christmas, and they're completely ignoring the true meaning of it, which is the birth of the Messiah. I actually chatted about this with Pat on a call before the recording, and I said, well, let's remember they're a town that lives on a snowflake, so perhaps their perception of Christmas and these holidays is just glimpses that they've been able to take as the snowflakes fallen, and at the same time, that's why it's a bit more of just a secular holiday for them. Yeah, but I'm sure if you look at how they would celebrate Easter, I would imagine it's all about uh, baskets of candy and finding eggs and and just absolutely nothing to do with the religious aspect of Easter. Yeah, they're just about the brunch and the chocolate. Exactly. It's all about the brunch. Fair enough. Brunch and candy. Yeah, I don't think Dr. Seuss put that much thought into it. He definitely didn't uh, add in the Hoosteins, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, you're you're right. It's uh, actually, I, I was thinking about, you know, the classic Grinch film. Like, so when I think of like classic, um, Christmas classics, of course, Charlie Brown Christmas comes to mind, and that was that that was a very um, religious forward holiday special, right? Yes. Um, but the grit, like the original, how the Grinch stole uh, Christmas. Um, actually, yeah, you, you're right. It doesn't. It, it has some religious undertones, but very curious to have those particular things drop in the narration and then it's a funny question like to ask uh, is there a jesus christ in this who society it's an unanswerable question it, it seems uh, like there isn't but i don't know i just um it made me think just on the rewatch 
Gentlemen, anything to add before we start to wrap this up? In the year 2000, the Who's looked askew. It was, but it was an homage to Dr. Seuss, a creative breakthrough. And in the Grinch's world where reality bends, it's a whimsical journey where fantasy transcends. Lovely. Anton, this is perfect. I will say, I don't disagree with you that it's not a movie that you could translate the story and the ability to draw what Whoville is into uh, a live action is, is a hard sell, right? It, you're never going to get it perfect. There's countless films that we've seen that can't do it, but I think their best shot was, in my opinion, great. I, I think, you know, they did what they needed to do and they put Jim Carrey in and I feel like what else could they have done? That was perfect. So we talk about what we like it and giving our rating. Ryan, you are the guest. So would you like to go first? I would like to go last. Oh, that's fine too. I'll go first because I have a feeling I'm going to give this the lowest rating. I am not a Jim Carrey fan to begin with. There was no possibility of me ever loving this film, but I do think he does exactly what he is paid to do. He gives this 100%. His performance is memorable. I think it's funny for the most part. This is very much pun intended. This is a carry job from the lead actor. I think without his rubber-faced antics, this is a horrible film. It fails completely without him in it. None of the supporting cast does anything great. The visuals are some of the ugliest I've ever seen in a blockbuster. It all goes back to my opinion that Dr. Seuss's material just does not translate to live action. I think this is a poor film brought up to borderline mediocre by an incredible Jim Carrey performance. I do want to give it marks for its ambition. I think they really tried to be creative in adapting very challenging source material. Uh, I don't blame Ron Howard or the studio for failing to realize that the source material is just best, best left in its original animated format. All things considered, they probably did the best they could. I wouldn't go out of my way to rewatch it anytime soon. It's not on my short list of go-to Christmas movies. Um, but I did have an amusing enough time revisiting it, if only for the podcast. And I do have some fond memories of watching this with my family in simpler times. I rate this a D+. Very nice. Very nice. I, You know, Pat, I'll, I'll just say this now. Very fair. I, would, I wouldn't call you a Grinch myself. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Well, I'll go next. It's been so much fun being able to revisit this film and really dissect it, take a look at how history has looked at the film over time. I think that part of the fun of being able to analyze this film is we all come to our own conclusions of were, were certain decisions on purpose? Was it just serendipitous? Was this ad-libbed? Was, are the, <laughs> did we really need this filter on so many scenes? And I think what's fun with that is being able to take the different parts together and one, celebrate the fact that we were able to be on a timeline where Jim Carrey did have such an amazing, just over-the-top performance that has endured through the years. And then at the same time, look at these things that maybe we didn't love so much, like these filters on the cameras, this haunting who makeup, and then just kind of wonder, like, maybe was part of it on purpose and part of trying to have some deeper layers within the storytelling that we can celebrate to this day. I know on my end, I think that there's there's a new appreciation that I have for the film that I didn't have when I was younger, even 
given much thought through uh, to, up until the point of recording. And while it's not a perfect film for me, I don't think that it's something that I, I'd want to watch every year for the holidays. It's something that I definitely would come back to. And I think that this film definitely uh, deserves a second look if it's been a bit since you've seen the film. And come to your own conclusions, because I think of all of our episodes that you know Pat and I have recorded, I think this one's definitely a, a bit more divisive. So from my end, I, I enjoyed this film. Um, while not perfect, it, it is something that I can look at my nostalgia glasses and say, it was good then, and actually, I have a different appreciation for it now. It's a C minus for me. Okay, I obviously have a passion. I would almost call it for this movie. Uh, Pat, you talked about your short list of Christmas movies that you would call your go tos. This for me is absolutely um, maybe two, one or two on the list. Uh, Elf is is right up there too. Not necessarily old school classics like your Christmas Story, but they always end up uh, being watched multiple times through the holiday season for me. Um, it's a feel-good movie. It makes me laugh. I mentioned the rewatchability uh, is high for me. I think, you know, knowing what's going to happen from start to finish, it still makes me laugh. Um, I appreciate the movie. I guess I don't necessarily look at the movie through the same lens as you both with the muddy brown kind of filters and maybe it's something i'll pay attention to uh on my next rewatch which will be probably in the next couple days if i had to guess because i watched it without my wife and that's a no-go in this house so uh that being said jim carrey is amazing in this i think he absolutely nails the character of the grinch and for me i guess to be fair i would say i would give this movie an a minus well, I think you did a tremendous job defending your liking for it. I appreciate that. I, I, I think all of your points were valid. And again, I, I another reason I love this podcast, it gives me a perspective and a way to view movies that I would say naturally I don't necessarily look out for. And I, I do appreciate that. So I will take all of your criticisms and, and rewatch and see if I can pick some of that stuff out myself. Fantastic. I love celebrating that on the podcast too. By the way, Ryan, it's just great to have one, a strong opinion on the film and being able to have some civil discourse on it. So indeed, we invite, we invite every single listener to share, even if you disagree with us, your same opinions, because isn't that the meaning of Christmas? <laughs> no, it's stuffing things and buying and spending money. Oh, shoot, that reminds me. I got to go to the store. <laughs> uh, what is your go-to list of Christmas movies? Miracle on 34th Street. The original? Yeah, the original. Definitely. It's a Wonderful uh, Life. It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, I really like um, The Santa Claus. The Santa Claus is great. I love The Santa Claus. The first one, right? The original. Right, the first, oh, the original. They needed to stop right yeah. there. And uh, it's really bad, but it's guilty pleasure fun is, uh, of course, everyone's favorite uh, Jingle All the Way. Oh, my God. Yeah. Great movie. <laughs> I love that movie. Jamie, I'm going to get you a turbo doll. <laughs> Put that cookie down. <laughs> now. That's my ball. <laughs> oh, Jingle All the Way is so high on the list for me. 
Uh, it's a very rewatchable movie. Uh, yes, Christmas Vacation's on my list. Obviously, the first mm-hmm. Home Alone, Die Hard. Uh, Anton, do you know there is oh, a yeah. James Bond movie that's a Christmas movie? Uh, it's true. True story. Really? Yes. On Her hmm. Majesty's Secret Service is a Christmas movie. Got me there. Ryan, you can t- keep that in mind when you're uh, prepping for the next recording. Absolutely will. Yeah. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, is that on anyone's list? I enjoy The Nightmare Before Christmas yeah. quite a bit. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely a great one. But is it Elf, a Christmas You mentioned movie? Elf. That's definitely on the list. A Muppet Christmas Carol, classic. That's my wife's favorite. See, I was great curious, movie. Pat, if you would like um, Elf, because the humor of Will Ferrell kind of, I'd say, although it's his, he's kind of like Jim Carrey and it's his own brand, uh, it's a similar, similar, similar type. It um, is. I think where where I like that movie far above the Grinch is I thought the story was much more compelling. You had great, great supporting performances in it, like from James Caan and the rest of the cast that I think the, the Grinch just didn't have for me. A lot uh, of parallels. A lot of parallels. Yeah. You know? I loved, he, didn't, uh, he didn't fit. He didn't fit in. James Caan in that movie, is it's like one of my favorite supporting performances. He's so great. Played it so straight, it was hilarious. Oh, yeah. It's it's so it's so great. R.I.P. Jimmy uh, Khan. Yes. What else is on my really, list? Um, the uh, the animated short film, The Snowman from the eighties. That's really good. Jack uh, Frost. I I enjoyed Love Actually with my wife. Trading Places. In Bruges. That is a Christmas movie, technically, right? Yep. Yeah. Iron Man three. Just kidding. Uh, that's a funny joke we're stretching it because it hurts me me. (laughs) that one hurts me (laughs) Uh, Ryan thank you so much for joining us to talk about the Grinch it it was my pleasure I really appreciate you both having me on uh, and and giving it a a good discussion love having you on Ryan you're always welcome on why wasn't it better we're going to have you back on soon I'll be here well that's it for how the Grinch stole Christmas this will probably be maybe will be the f- the episode that listeners hear before christmas so merry christmas to merry everyone. christmas merry christmas one and all we may be sneaking a uh, a surprise christmas episode um which may come out on christmas day or um thereabouts so we will see what happens there and that's it we will see you next time on why wasn't it better later folks